The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Peter Menzel. He is an award-winning freelance photojournalist and along with his wife, writer and editor Faith Deluzio, created a series of stunning books that explore global consumption. For example, in 94, Menzel created the best-selling book Material World, a global family portrait, which focused on the material possessions and daily lives of average families around the world. In 98, he and Deluzio published Man-Eating Bugs, the Art and Science of Eating Insects, which won a 1999 James Beard Award. In 2005, Menzel and Deluzio rocked the world with their book Hungry Planet, What the World Eats. This book takes a global view of 35 families' weekly food purchases from two dozen countries, the total cost along with assorted vital statistics. And the centerpiece of each chapter is a portrait of the entire family surrounded by a week's worth of groceries. The couple won the James Beard Best Book Award in 2006 for Hungry Planet and in 2005 received recognition by the Harry Chapin World Hunger Media Foundation. Their latest collaboration, What I Eat, Around the World in 80 Diets, features the portraits of 80 people from 30 countries and the food they eat in a typical day. These portraits range from a Japanese sumo wrestler to a Maasai herdswoman to an American truck driver and competitive eater. By shining a light into the global pantries, Menzel and Deluzio illuminate culture, economy, and way of life. Welcome, Mr. Menzel. Thanks, Melinda. Well, I heard you speak in 2010 at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics annual meeting, and I thought your work was so visually compelling and thought-provoking that I have been wanting to have you on as my guest for all that time. So I want to ask you, I'm sure you're asked this quite a bit, but what led you down this path of documenting consumption? It was rather inevitable, and it's been in our face forever. Both my wife and I, Faith Delucio, travel a lot. We travel a lot internationally working. And we'd come home after a month, and the first thing that you do is go to the supermarket. And we noticed that people in the supermarket around us were filling their carts with things that didn't look like what people in third world and developing countries were eating. And we noticed that they were getting larger and larger and larger. And at the turn of the century, turn of the millennium, actually, in the year 2000, the the World Watch Institute came out with a report that said for the first time in the history of our planet that there were as many people overfed as underfed. And the bells and whistles went off in our brain. And we decided that we should really take a look at what the world was eating and the difference between different cultures and why some cultures were having problems with chronic diseases that were diet-related and others weren't. Mm-hmm. What I think is so interesting is that you have captured such intimate portraits of these individuals, families and individuals, in your last book. And I wonder, what are your, some of your greatest challenges in getting to the people that you photograph? It's not really that difficult if you are willing to share some of your own 
stories and photos. You know, we carry a little picture book of our family, and when we're doing a project, we make photos, uh, prints of the families or the people that we've already photographed in order to explain the concept to people. And we just try to be friendly and open and explain what's going on and that people have to sacrifice a little bit of their own privacy to help the general public and the idea that we're all in this together and we should be sharing what we know and uh, how we live so that uh, we can learn from each other. Mm-hmm. And what about language barriers? Well, that is a problem because most of the places we go, English is not spoken. So we always find a translator and a fixer, you know, through the <laughs> photojournalism network. You can usually find someone in a country that can help you set things up or know somebody that knows somebody that would be willing to cooperate with you. So that's what we do. We find people in advance or sometimes we'll have to actually go to a country and just knock on doors or or start asking people. But no, it's not that difficult. The very first book that you mentioned that we did called Material World, a Global Family Portrait, Mm -hmm. where we went around the world shooting 30 statistically average families and asking them to take every single possession outside of their house. Mm -hmm. That was a difficult project, and that took a lot of talking. But having families show what they eat in a typical week or an individual in a typical day or going around the world and photographing people that still eat insects as part of their culture and part of their daily or seasonal diet is kind of easy compared to asking people to take everything that they own out of their house. Yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting in the back of your last book, What I Eat, you and your wife are both shown with what you eat, and there are several essays in there which are wonderful. But you describe how your wife, Faith, gagged herself around the globe looking at these insects, for example. And I believe in one of the talks you gave, you describe how you don't mind eating the insects, but for Faith, it was more difficult. Yeah, she's a, um, a more conservative person as far as eating goes, although she is pretty good about just about everything. I mean, there's no type of fish or shellfish or anything, but insects are different. I mean, it's something that there's a visceral, repulsive thing that I think that people genetically or, you know, psychologically have come to embrace in order to survive. I mean, before fast food farms or even agriculture, every person that evolved was a hunter-gatherer, and insects were one of the first things that they consumed because they were easy to harvest, and they're very high in protein. And, you know, a woolly caterpillar thrown on the fire is a lot easier than a woolly mammoth. Right, exactly. Well, I thought it was interesting about the insects because you mentioned how they're extremely efficient converters of their food into protein that humans can eat, and yet when we try to raise them the way we do much of our livestock, our larger livestock, we run into the same problems where they really can't be produced in a grand scale. Sure. It seems that entomophagy every 10 years or so seems to uh, come up in the public discourse. And, for instance, a few years ago, a UN report came out saying that we really should possibly look at raising insects for human food consumption because of their high protein and the fact that they are such 
efficient converters of biomass. And it's true that insects are much more efficient at converting the food that they eat to protein than anything else that we really consume rather than fish or anything else. Uh, compared to um, cattle, they're about eight times better. Pigs are the most efficient probably of any mammal, and they are something like one to four. Four pounds of feed will produce one pound of flesh on a pig, and uh, an insect, it's one to one. It's actually one to two, so they can eat two pounds of something and they'll eat and they'll produce one pound of, uh, of protein. The problem is that it takes hundreds of them to do that, and when you pack a few million of them into a small space, which you would need to do to raise them efficiently like you do with CAFOs, they're much more susceptible to disease and to um, to anything else that could possibly go wrong with one of them that could be transferred to another one in very close proximity. Yeah, so I, th- I thought that was there's, fascinating. Yeah, there's there's a bug or two I think in in most reports about how terrific it could be if that could that could happen. And you know, around the world, people still do eat insects, and it's it's a seasonal thing, and a lot of times it's used as a bridge food to carry over agricultural people from, from one harvest to another because they they are packed with protein, and some of them are actually quite quite tasty. Mm-hmm. Well, that brings me to a different issue that's related, and that is how we do raise our animals. And I should let our listeners know that in addition to your books, on your website, which is www.menzelphoto.com, You feature a stock archive of environmental images, including animal confinement facilities and pesticide spray planes. And so they are disturbing looks at really the backstory of what is on our plate. And I wonder, how easy was it for you to get into some of those poultry and hog facilities and cattle ranches to capture those photographs? Well, most of those images are about 20 years old, and it mm-hmm. was not extremely difficult back then because I have an agricultural background. I ran a uh, cattle ranch in Tennessee before, or actually while I was beginning my photojournalism career, and I have a lot of a lot of things in common with people that have agriculture as their as their livelihood. But today, it would be it's it's almost impossible because of the laws and because of the, the big agribusiness industry trying to protect themselves from actually letting the public know how some of this actually works. Just a few years ago, we were in on the East Coast in one of the biggest turkey-producing areas of Virginia, and it took about 10 phone calls, but finally I did get into one huge turkey operation, but it was extremely difficult. Yeah. Well, I wonder if your eating behaviors changed as a result of seeing some of those practices? Yes and no. I mean, having raised beef cattle myself, you know, running a a calf operation in Tennessee, we did eat our own cattle. And as a kid, I raised 4-H baby beef and was pretty much involved in in that. I still eat meat. Faith eats less of it. But we really, it's better to eat a lot less meat to get your protein in other places, but our eating habits have changed, and it has been partially by what we see around the world, but partially because of what we know is better for ourselves and for our planet. 
Mm-hmm. And so tell me how your eating habits changed. Well, we've got a much bigger garden than we used to have, and we limit like beef or you know red meat to try to do it once a month. And as we see in other countries where meat is used as a condiment rather than a main course, we try to do that too. For instance, like um, earlier this week, or maybe it was over the weekend, I bought two pork chops, and it's lasted for like six or seven days in burritos. And, you know, when, when I actually barbecued the pork chops, we both ate maybe two square inches of a pork chop, and the rest of it goes to other dishes that we'd have throughout the week. So that amount of meat is which was a little bit less than a pound, is lasting for two people for a week. Yeah, it's a much more sustainable way to eat, I know. In an earlier conversation, I was talking to you about some of the photographs. In It was the Rivas family from North Carolina. And what was so remarkable to me was, you know, it was a typical American spread. There was a lot of processed food. But just as when we see how food is produced, it changes how we eat, you remarked that the Rivas family changed their way of eating based on seeing the photographs that you took of their weekly intake. Yes, a lot of families that we photographed have done that, too, because lots of times you never see all the food at one time. You might go to the supermarket and buy a week's worth of food, but, you know, you're putting it into your cart and then you're putting it away at home, but you're not seeing the huge display of it, and you're not seeing all the pizzas and all the fast food and all the sodas that you drink throughout the week. So when you see all that at once, you go, wow, our family really puts that away? And the Revis family is a, a really good example. They were cognizant of gaining weight, so they joined the health club, and they exercised two or three times a week, but they found out that the time that they had allotted to go to the health club, do the exercise, and come home, there was less time to cook, so they found that they were eating more fast food. So what they did is that they bought some home exercise equipment and really cut down on the fast food and the sodas and changed their diet according to what was better for them and would be better for most Americans, and that's to cook things from scratch. Exactly. Uh, Let me take one short break here to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Mr. Peter Menzel, an award-winning freelance photojournalist, and along with his wife, writer and editor Faith Deluzio, they have created a series of stunning books that explore global consumption. I want to talk a little bit about the creeping of the processed foods into diets globally. And you speak about that in your books and in your interviews. But what is so remarkable is the association with a better life with these processed foods. And when I think we were talking about a photograph of a family from Ecuador, and when I looked at that photograph, I thought, wow, these people are really eating well. And then you explained to me on the side that actually they would like to buy more processed foods if they could afford them. Sure, and I think that everybody would too, just as everybody wants a TV and a car, and most people would rather sit in a car in a traffic jam than walk for an hour to work. It's part of human nature, and uh, we're just programmed to like things that have more sugar and more fat and uh, and more protein. and. The Ecuadorian family and the Guatemalan family and a lot of families, the Mali family, you look at their picture and there's very, very little processed food. The Ecuadorian family, I think the only thing that they had was some, uh, one of their favorite breakfast things was Quaker uh, oatmeal, but they were buying the processed 
cooked meal, which was almost instant and uh, had a lot less fiber and um, and more, you know, adding more sugar to it than, than other things. But uh, they ate a pretty healthy diet, and that's pretty much what we looked at when we saw families in India and, and Mexico. But at the same time, you see, for instance, the family in Mexico. Okay, they're in Cuernavaca with three kids, and they're not very wealthy, but they have a, a little store down below that uh, their apartment where they they sell to a little supermarket. And they sort of got hooked on Coca-Cola, and they were drinking something like 30 liters of Coke a week. Maybe it was even more. Maybe it was 60 liters. I can't remember exactly. But they they sort of replaced soda with drinking water, and the kids started having you know cavities and uh, gaining a lot of weight. And uh, that's what happens when you consume something that's really sweet that doesn't have any real food value, and that is soda, which is something that, speaking of what we do now, is we're drinking soda. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, the work that you have done is every nutritionist's dream because it so well lays out the changes that we can see globally with industrialized food reaching farther and farther into places where these foods never were seen before and where populations are suffering from nutritional deficiencies. And so on top of the nutritional deficiency, you've got these processed foods. So seeing this is really important for us, I think, in terms of changing policies. And I wonder if any of your work has been used in a policy way. Have these photographs been used to change policies or to make an impact on some of our global food policies? Well, we sure hope so. A couple of years ago, the Nobel Peace Center had a huge exhibit of Hungry Planet, and they actually then commissioned us to shoot three other families in Norway to add to the collection and just sort of bolster the local value of of an exhibit. And uh, it doubled their uh, admissions for the six months that it was up. And we've seen lots of you know, we speak to companies also, and a lot of big food companies have commissioned us to come and speak to them. And I think they understand some of the problems, but at the same time, in a capitalist society, they are looking at their bottom line and they're looking at how they can maybe break into third world markets better and how they can increase their sales. So they're not really that concerned with changing everyone's diet to make them more healthy, they're looking at their healthy bottom line, which to me is problematic. It is. In fact, in one of the interviews, your wife explains that you don't really want to tell people what to think, but that you like to share your opinions because you want to help them make intelligent decisions for the planet. And that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on, because I want to know what drives you. What is it that makes you capture a particular image through your lens. And I do want to know your opinion about why you do this work and what you want people to take away from it. Yeah, well, I think I've said that uh, we really want to educate people so that they can make better decisions for themselves. You know, when you start telling people what to think or you present them with a lot of facts and statistics, What we've done is we've gone around the world and created 
images that put a face on statistics. So you can really understand what it means to have $30 a week that you spend on food in Ecuador or, you know, just a few dollars, extra dollars if you're living in a refugee camp in Chad, how you would get by. Or the family in Kuwait that, you know, spends two or $300 and 99% of the food in Kuwait is imported because it's a desert. We've got lots of choices in America, but are a lot of these choices really the healthy ones? <laughs> we usually go to a bakery and get get bread, and uh, the other day the Faith didn't have time to go to the bakery, so she ran to the supermarket and again was you know pounding the side of her head looking at the ingredients of all the all the breads, trying to find one that didn't have sugar as the second or third ingredient. Exactly. And, you know, you just go to the supermarket and you see, you know, you try and buy a spaghetti sauce that isn't loaded with sugar. There's some great things about food technology and processed food, and it lasts longer and it's more efficient and it's cheaper to produce. But at the same time, you've got to uh, really understand that eating too much of it is not good for you because it's already been partially digested by the process that, of manufacturing. So you can eat a certain amount of processed food and a certain amount of raw food, maybe the same weight, and because the raw food has more fiber and your body needs to do more to digest it, you're going to gain more weight and just get a lot bigger by eating processed food compared to real natural food. Exactly. Let me ask you about whether or not you witnessed a lot of food waste globally. I mean, in the United States, it's a huge problem. The EU has taken some much more progressive steps in reducing food waste. Globally, what are you seeing? Well, there's different issues in different places. In Africa, it's partially due to infrastructure problems where there's a lot of wasted food where it doesn't get to market or it's wasted because it spoils on the way to market and there aren't very really efficient ways of growing food in mass-produced ways. In other countries, there's less wasted food. You go to Scandinavia and, and food's a lot more expensive, so there's a, a lot less waste. But at the same time, people that have more income, here in the United States and in the, in the developed world, we spend maybe 10 to 20% of our income on food, whereas in the developing world, people may spend 80% of their income on food. So it's the most important thing that they look at every day when they go shopping, and they do go shopping almost daily. So it's it's a completely different picture that we're looking at when we look at a you know, developed world family and a, a developing world family as to how they're eating and what they're eating. Mm -hmm. You've got some difficult images to look at. There was one image of a little child with flies on its face. You've got a photograph in your environmental section under the invasive species of a snake on a child's bed, and I understand that was done under very careful supervision. Yeah, it's a photo illustration in um, in a place. It's not uh, Western Samoa. It's uh, I think it's Guam. Guam, right, where the brown tree snakes yes. have, have eaten all the eggs, and there aren't any birds left in Guam. Right. So, <laughs> you know, brown tree snakes came to Guam in lumber during World War II, and they took over the island and. The brown tree snakes are just like everywhere. They were causing power outages because they would climb between two live wires 
and the electrical system, and they would short it out, electrocute themselves, and the lights would go out in over half the town. But snakes were a problem, and they were going into people's homes, and and they particularly liked the breath of sleeping babies. So that was one of the things that, that I illustrated for a New York Times magazine piece. Well, we just have a few minutes left, and so I want to give you a chance to bring forth anything from your work that you want our listeners to know. Sure. Okay. Well, I've said that we'd like people to look at these pictures and read the text and the stories and understand for themselves and make decisions for themselves. But what we learned from ourselves and what we really took away from from looking at, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 other countries and people's diets and what they eat is Japan. Okay. Harahajibu is a Japanese phrase that parents teach their kids and it means 80%. And you're supposed to stop eating when you feel, before you're really full, when you feel that you're approaching 80%. And because we have a little bit of a time lapse between our stomach and our brain and our you know, intestines, it's a really good idea to not eat until you're totally, totally full. So that's one thing. And I grew up with parents from the Depression who always said, clean your plate, you know, have something else to eat, uh, make sure that you have enough to eat, because they grew up in a situation where there often wasn't enough to eat. So that's one thing to understand in a society where food is pretty much omnipresent and people have the opposite problem of too much food all the time and a lot of it highly processed is just sort of see if you can control yourself and push yourself away from the table before you're totally full. The other thing is beware of sugar and the amount of empty calories and soda and even in fruit drinks where it's, it's, it's processed fruit that is all the fibers removed and it has just as much sugar as soda. You've got to really be careful of, of those kind of things. And then uh, read ingredients and encourage encourage the government to do much more honest food labeling so that you don't have to be a uh, be a computer scientist or a um, you know a mathematician to figure out how much sugar is in something or what actually is good for you and what's not good for you. Mm-hmm. So read the labels and uh, just be aware of what you eat. The other thing, what we really found valuable is when we did our last book, What I Eat Around the World in 80 Diets, where we measured everything that people ate in one day, and then we calorically analyzed it. And then the way that we did that is we had to measure everything. And what we did for ourselves then while we were doing this book is we, for a week or so, we measured everything that we ate and we wrote it down in a diary, and then we calorically analyzed that. And we learned so much about what certain foods, how much calories are packed into, like cooking oil and butter and and sugar and things. And if you just understand the fact that you should be eating 2,000, 2,500 calories a day and being active, that adding another 50, 100 calories a day through something like a piece of fried chicken or, or something that's highly processed won't make you obese overnight or it won't give you health problems, but day by day over years, it certainly will. I want to thank you so much, Mr. Menzel, for being my guest and for creating these important works of art that are both visually stimulating, compelling, and very much thought-provoking. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, Mr. Peter Menzel, award-winning freelance photojournalist, who, along with his wife, created 
three books that I'm going to strongly recommend, Man Eating Bugs, The Art and Science of Eating Insects, Hungry Planet, What the World Eats, and What I Eat Around the World in 80 Diets. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much, Mr. Menzel. Oh, you're welcome, Melinda. Our pleasure. 